Hello and welcome to Sport Unlocked, the podcast giving you the inside track on the world of sports news. To guide me, Rob Harris from the Associated Press, round the headlines as ever, are Martin Ziegler from the Times and Tarek Panja from the New York Times. And later in the show, we'll be exploring why UEFA's planned Champions League changes could be scaled back. But first, one of the most successful agents in football, Mina Royola, has died at the age of 54 after a long illness. He represented Ibrahimovic, Pogba and Haaland. And Martin, he really was a significant figure in the global game. We knew um, Raiola, um, sort of infamous for commanding huge fees. For example, I think he like, made about 40 million euros personally from the Paul Bogba transfer to Manchester United. Yeah, it was, it was like you said, it's, it's a, he's an important personality for a number of reasons. Obviously, there is the... Um, Massive amount of commissions he, he he takes. He's very outspoken about the game. And he had been fighting FIFA in the courts over their planned changes to the transfer system. Changes that would have curbed the earnings of agents. And this was to have been a very significant summer for him and players he represents. With Pogba leaving Manchester United. Haaland leaving Borussia Dortmund potentially for Manchester City. And... These are just two of the players whose careers he helped to shape, who managed to secure big deals for them. So a huge loss for them and, of course, to his family. And his family also had to deal with this pain on Thursday of his death being prematurely announced two days before he actually did die. And this was news that spread all around the world, wasn't it? And it did take some time for clarity to emerge, didn't it? The fact he was still at that point fighting for his life on Thursday and he hadn't, in fact, died. I kind of tried to find out where this information is coming from in order to write a story. And it was blasted on front pages of sports sections across Europe, from Honest Martin, not just in Italy. And serious newspapers in Italy, um, in the UK, elsewhere, but couldn't find who actually said he died in any of these stories. Um, I phoned an agent here who knows him and he said i i i've i've seen the reports as well i don't know but if it's true it's really sad a couple of minutes later he rang me back to say he's not dead and i was like blimey and that that tells you a little bit about oh a lot of things about social media and perhaps the way we we report what the last person reported and the dangers of that what this shone a light on was actually just some of the quite frankly, bad practices of the media. We spend a lot of time on this pod discussing governing bodies, their decision-making, how they act. Well, what this reporting of wrongly of Royola's death shows actually is just how some information spreads. And what we see in it, I think, and yes, we're all trying to chase stories, we all want to report the news, is perhaps some reporters are so desperate to be seen to be certain of the news is that they pick it up from places and they just state it as fact without them being sure. So Tancredi Palmeri did actually say he was going to take a week off Twitter. He said the reason he reported it was because all the big Italian outlets were reporting it. So it meant he didn't have it firsthand. So I think generally, if you are reporting a death, you need to have an official announcement. In some cases, if it's a state level death, it might be the state news agency in some countries. But here, 
it was it was just a journalist i think going on the fact multiple other outlets were saying it yeah i mean it, it was um as you say widely picked up i think it was in le keep um italian media um certainly i think it was the the, the top story on on daily mail online um they had super agent raiola dead as their main story breaking news and then shortly afterwards raiola i'm not dead <laughs> With the same picture, the same pictures of him, to different headline. And it's all about, I suppose, in some way, attribution. And this gets lost in terms of things like Twitter aggregation of news, that the original source of the news is lost. So people just repeat it and regurgitate it. And this shows, actually, there is protection, at least, of saying who is the actual outlet reporting it to be sure if something does turn out not to be true. Well, you've clearly said this is not our information. This is this outlet. And headlines didn't have things like reports in or even the actual name of the outlet and i suppose the other thing and it's something quite particular to some parts of the media is some bits of news will be put in single quotes which is meant to imply we don't actually know but i'm not too sure if the readers actually are too sure no and the thing with this this one is there were reputable outlets that published this piece of information um, and that gives it its its um, kind of importance and almost makes it feel it must be correct because it is in, for example, in Italy, it was Gazzetta della Sport, the, the leading sports paper there, and La Repubblica, you know, a national newspaper, had it on the on the on the front of their on their homepage as well on their news pages. So for for people to cite the reporting in a way that kind of absolves you, given that these are credible places. But again, just something like a death, again, for our, for our place, well, you need direct confirmation and was trying to get that. But but again, yeah, not, not a great day for the media and also highlights, I guess, the risks associated with social media and and the speed of information these days. There was something akin to this story that was actually dramatised in the Aaron Sorkin series, The Newsroom, when in 2011, a lot of media reported in the US that the Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords had been shot dead. It led to outlets like NPR in the States apologising to the family for having reported that she died when she didn't die. And, you know, it was an example of where some more cautious outlets didn't report the news so quite a few anchors did go on air in the states of the, of the major networks to say that she died and this news spread rapidly and it just shows actually sometimes you might need to be slow to be certain yeah you're right rob i mean i think it was treated a bit like a transfer story wasn't it you know people thinking oh we'll just say something and without being too um, fussy about making sure it's absolutely accurate um and i'm sure uh some of those who've done that will will think again next time around. And Rayola's death did come in an announcement from the family on Saturday in a statement that did say, in infinite sorrow, we share the passing of the most caring and amazing football agent that ever was. Mino fought until the end with the same strength he put on negotiation tables to defend our players. As usual, Mino made us proud and never realised it. Of course, our thoughts with the Rayola family. We do move, though, on to the world of football politics, and it's 
crunch time for changes to the Champions League format from 2024. We've got significant UEFA meetings coming up in the second week of May. Before then, the European League's organisation has been meeting in recent days in Istanbul. They've been formalising their opposition to these changes from UEFA. In particular, the new group stage that will expand from 32 to 36 teams from 2024. What the European Leagues are saying is two of those additional places should not go as UEFA plans to teams based on their historic record in the competition, their coefficient on the last five years, a safety net for those successful teams who miss out by their normal qualification through their leagues. Also, the European Leagues want the number of group stage games not to grow from six per team to ten, but to eight only. Yeah, I mean, we obviously we've covered this in depth um, and gone through why we, the, the sort of idea of having qualifying via coefficient is so controversial and anathema to many many of the uh, the clubs who wouldn't benefit. Um, but I think it's uh, I think there's a sort of desire within some UEFA's leadership to to get rid of those and do something else. Be interesting to see what actually comes out. I mean, I, one thing I think may happen is that it won't be ten matches. They might have eight instead. I, I spoke to someone from a middle-sized club recently. This was this was interesting. Not where I first heard it, but but um, about the eight games. And this team is from one of the big five leagues. For the middle-sized clubs um, who qualify for European competition from, say, one of the big big leagues. They're saying, well, 10 games is too much because it will devalue the um, leagues they're in because they generate most of their own income from from playing in, in say, the Bundesliga or La Liga and, and Premier League, etc. Um, so they're saying, can we reduce that to eight? But Rob, you have an idea that for a big team in a small league, more games in Europe is probably better. Well, yeah, the fact is... A group stage with 10 games means, say, Celtic in Scotland would get five home games in the Champions League, which is a chance to sell more hospitality packages, more seats, actually generate more revenue than now when you only get three games with little prospect of perhaps of going through to the next phase. So while the games themselves might be less interesting because of the sort of bloated nature of the group stage and the fact that we've discussed that 24 of the 36 teams do go through, so you can finish 24th and get into a playoff round. Actually, for some of these middle-class clubs, maybe it's just about being sure of those games with some of the bigger clubs coming to town. So you can use it as a chance to generate revenue, but still, those same clubs will be opposed to the coefficient places generally because it is giving an extra edge and advantage to the elite. Yeah, but it tells you um, the conversation that we're having here how many sort of conflicting interests there are, even when you go lower down, even within the sort of medium-sized club group, which is which is much larger as a cohort than than the the super league clubs, for example. But even within those, there there are so many different interests. So I guess that's the size of the task facing facing UEFA when they come to making a decision like this. And there does seem to be quite a effort mobilising amongst those middle ranking clubs and this week I got the chance to talk on a international media call to Eintracht Frankfurt CEO Axel Hellman who brought up his concerns about the Champions League becoming a monster and something we 
don't perhaps talk about as much, which is the financial distribution of UEFA prize money, which is actually favoured towards those with a higher coefficient and better European record too. And that was something I discussed with the Eintracht Frankfurt CEO, Axel Hellman. Well, this is a difficult discussion because I see that the competition in the Champions League is getting tougher and tougher and harder and harder. So uh, it means at the end for the top clubs, I can totally understand that they have to get um, the biggest uh, piece of, pie, of the pie, of the wafer pie. But I think that the gap between EuroLeague and Champions League is too big, the spread is too big. It makes no sense that the Champions League goes further and further and the EuroLeague stays almost on the same level, almost on the same level. And I think what is needed in Europe is that the middle-class European clubs like Eintracht Frankfurt and in particular those clubs who are basically have only to, can only spend what they've earned before and as I said before, who are not driven by capital injections from their investors, they must have, but usually with a big fan base as traditional clubs in their countries, they need to have a chance to participate in the future in the European competition. So what, I, what, what I'm not in favor of is building up step by step a closed shop that only generates profit on itself. We need to have, first of all, the national pathway from the leagues to the competitions, open to everybody, and even maybe to the, from the minor leagues or smaller leagues in Europe. Secondly, the distribution of the money in the UEFA should be more well balanced between Champions League and EuroLeague. And there's a third argument. I think the concept of financial sustainability or formerly financial fair play needs to be um, really consequently executed. So enforcement is the decisive word. Not only building up a regime and rules, but the enforcement is very much important just to balance international competitions. On the other, uh, the, the, the other alternative will be clear. If we don't do this, to a certain extent, we build our own monster. Yeah? Uh, Champions League clubs will generate more and more and one day they try to enter Super League because this is their own only possibility to um, satisfy their capital needs. And that is something we need to avoid. And that's the reason why I'm very strong with uh, some other clubs in the initiative to strengthen the interests of the middle class European clubs. Does that mean these two coefficient places could lead to this monster being created as you see it? Yes, because you, it, it's, it pays always, if, you, if you're participating in Champions League and you, your coefficient gets higher and higher and the shop is more closed. So I do not believe that that should be the right requirement. Yeah, to participate in the European competitions, I would be more open to other leagues and other clubs. And the national qualification is therefore the most important door and the flutter to, to be kept open. Do you have a plan to stop it? Well, uh, we are just a small club, a middle-class cl club in Germany, and we are not the voice of all the European clubs. But there's one thing that we could do, we, at least we could give the other middle-class clubs a voice and organizing an initiative with some other clubs. And that's something we are working on. That's the Eintracht Frankfurt CEO, Axel Hellman, certainly giving a flavor of the wider concerns across clubs like his 
in the middle ranks of Europe about the power and wealth of the elite. Yeah, you're right when you talk about those sort of conflicting um, agendas and things. I mean, I, I think actually, you know, certainly I think the big clubs, they're not that keen on 10 group matches either. I think they would quite like eight because I think they they think they they would be risk having sort of too many sort of low standard games. I think I think sort of fewer high standard games that they would prefer. Um also there's this thing in the mix, which I don't won't be decided next month, around about this you know that we again I think it's it's been floating around for for months about this idea of the final four, this getting rid of the two legged semi finals, um and having a sort of week of football in one city. Um so the European Club Association chairman Nassel Khalifi, president of PSG. I mean, he's he's spoken favorably favorably about it. I think the ECA seem to be pushing it generally. Some people in UEFA like it. The UEFA president as well, Martin. He's been on the record. You know, some people in UEFA like it. Um, obviously, including Alexander Sheferin, who's spoken positively positively about it before. But some people in the UEFA administration don't like it. So, I think there's going to be. Uh, a big sort of fight over this one. He was talking up the prospect, Sheffrin, in Lisbon at the end of that final eight tournament that they held because of COVID, where no fans were allowed in at all. So they're able to gather the final eight teams and play the single leg games, culminating in that PSG Bayern Munich final. And, you know, there was a great excitement. And Sheffrin was telling me, you know, he particularly liked the concept, but that was without any fans. The moment you introduce a final four, it might seem very palatable and exciting to say us as media who know we're going to be there for the entire week but suddenly you've got to get four sets of fans potentially in one city through the week two groups of fans who don't know if they're going to be sticking around as well so you might suddenly only know part of the way through the week what your plans are obviously you could use a couple of cities nearby but it's not so easy for fans. It's not so easy for fans but I would say it's not the greatest hardship either they do attend World Cups and Euro knockouts, where they, where they have to get home. But from a from a commercial point of view, I, I looked looked at this last year and talked to sort of TV people, and they they were saying, look, the, the the equation for for television revenues is this: at the end of the day, you're talking about removing two of the biggest fixtures in terms of eyeballs, which is one of the legs of each of the semi-finals that you're going to lose. That's um, hundreds of millions of viewers around the world. But that said, the, the the knockout game, the excitement of a single elimination knockout is is enormous. And within that week of football concept, it's really good. And then the other stakeholder it, are the sponsors. They would absolutely love it. Imagine them having their names plastered over the biggest week in sports um, every year. So, you know, you've got the fans, you've got the sponsors, you've got the teams and, and the broadcasters. I think it's definitely something that is exciting and worth UEFA and ECA's time, isn't it? I, yeah, it's it's a, the the other thing though is if you have um, no semi final um, first leg at home, then is that is that good for the fans? Is that bad for the fans? I think you can argue for the match going fan that's that you, you who don't want to travel. You you're removing a an opportunity to see your team in you know in the in the final re- you know the, the final reaches of of the, of the biggest club competition there is so that's a factor too 
obviously the format still being concluded for the Champions League post-2024, so it could come in after that. Also, we've had keen interest from UEFA and others about potentially a final four final being held in the States, in New York perhaps as well. So something else in the mix there. Yeah, too. there was, funny enough, there was a, back in 2019, 20, when there was a, the team marketing people did a presentation to US um, um, broadcasters. They they sort of did a sort of model of the Champions League final being staged in New York uh, in 2024. Obviously, that was a sort of like, that's going to be at Wembley Stadium. But it is, obviously, it's an idea some people, some marketing sort of gurus in team um, think that that's a possibility. The future of the Champions League very much still up for discussion. In England, though, it's been more a matter of football governance itself that's been the key talking point this week. And the government rushing through with these plans to try to bring in a football regulator, an independent regulator, as they see stemming from this review that they call a fan-led review. It did involve a lot of fans being consulted on the future of the game after the Super League. And we did have a call between us with the sports minister, Nigel Huddleston. He appeared in Parliament to set out these plans for the government to try to enforce change on English football. So what would a regulator look like in English football and what are the prospects of its actual implementation? Well, this is one of the happiest days of your life, the birth of the independent regulator, Tarek. One of of them, Martin, I'm not going to lie to you. Huge, huge day of celebrations uh, around here. They've not advertised the post yet, so uh, one to watch out for when it's eventually brought in. Well, I can't say too much about that here, guys. Just want to say watch this space. <laughs> yeah, so uh, what this regulator will look like, I mean, one of the things it's set at, it, it could be part of the Financial Conduct Authority um, rather than a standalone body. Um, um, I think the sportsman has said it, it was very unlikely to be the, the Football Association, even if they sort of reform their whole governance and stuff. Having said that, from what I understand, there was an FA board meeting on um, Tuesday and uh, they were still sort of refusing to sort of um, concede defeat and were saying, oh, no, we could uh, we could still, um, you know, we could still, um, FA could still be the regulator, you know, bring in new independent directors, cut the number of directors from the professional game. Um, and that might that might get past the post, but it doesn't look like it, does it? So we'll have this basically this this organisation which will check club takeovers, but it will not be involved in distributing the finances. What well, might give them some hope, though, uh, about sort of lobbying for weakening it, which I'm sure they're going to try and do. The Premier League is 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 pretty good at sort of blunting any instrument that sort of challenges its hegemony over football in the UK and one of the one of the things is in order this they've announced a legislation but apparently it's not going to be put into the um queen the next queen's speech which means it could be two years or more before it's actually um a practical thing rather than a press release and a bunch of quotes and and interviews yeah, I, I, gonna, I think there's definitely some concerns over the delays, um, or if, if not the delays, then the, 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 the timescale. Um, interestingly, uh, we've done a, a, mentioned again previously, stories have done around the Premier League and conflicts of interests, which 
an independent regulator would certainly um, get rid of, and that is um, the interim chairman, Peter McCormick, that his firm, his law firm, being employed by the Premier League to carry out the owners and directors test checks. Um, after the, and after those, um, my initial stories I ran in the Times, the Premier League are now going to understand, they're going to ditch their, that deal with, the, with that law firm, and Peter McCormick is going to step down as chairman of the FA's remuneration committees. Um, so that's, uh, that's something. Anyway, they're getting their governance a bit better, even without the independent regulator. I suppose it's a story that might not have had masses of attention, but certainly one you've pursued, and it's come to a sort of result that would look like the governance is sort of cleaned up in a way. Yeah, actionable news, and it means Martin's going to get one less Christmas card this year. <laughs> but um, you know, all, all all of this, all of this um, talk about regulators and and, and what they're going to do, I think for for fans, and, and I can speak for myself as a journalist as well. I think what would help is just a greater degree of transparency. Um, and they say, well, the Premier League always say, well, we're we're in line with UK business rules but I think these football teams are more than regular businesses and some of the legislation should look at that in terms of access to information access to um, you know salary data all, all these things that people care about a lot because it's not your biscuit company down the road it means a lot to, to society here I think some of this conversation needs to be looking at something as basic as can we just get some more information please yeah the uh, actually the the fa's chairwoman debbie hewitt in her letter to nadine dorries um responding to the independent regulator um suggestions she she said that football clubs need to be treated as a special case and and they, they, they probably do because i mean if you look at uh, you know the, the the previous um owner of bolton wanderers he took them into administration um, Ken Anderson, and he had been like banned from being a company director for eight years, and then as soon as the ban was lifted, he was then it's fine, you can go and own a football club, um, and it's uh, crazy, isn't it? Uh, as we draw an end to this week's Sport Unlock, just some other talking points around. One significant one from Serie A is the fact that players in the women's game will finally be able to turn professional from next season. They've had amateur status, which means their salaries are being capped at thirty thousand euros a year, um, and that's something that has been highlighted as holding back the game. It was pointed out by the Italian team at the last World Cup, and now they are entering this professional era. Though, of course, as we talk about professionalisation in the women's game, still salaries can be pretty low. I suppose um, there there might be commensurate with. The, the income that the game generates as well. So you're going to have to figure out a way but to, to work that out. But, you know, you need to have football being a viable profession for for women at the elite level and for those hoping to get into it in order for, for it to, to grow and prosper. What that mark is, what that number is, is, is hard to know. But, you know, we have to look at some of the, 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 the I guess, the... Um, positive aspects we've seen in recent years as well. We've seen full stadiums from the FIFA World Cup. We've seen major broadcasters and primetime audiences as well provided as a platform for these games. Um, We hope to see it it prosper. And if women are paid better, great. 
It's strange that Italy is taking so long to come to this because, I mean, back in the sort of 70s and 80s, they were, they were sort of world leaders for women's football. Um, you know, they, they had in, even back then they had people from other countries like you know, um, Suzanne Augustuson, for example, from Denmark, was a sort of leading player in, in, in Italian women's football. Um, yet they they didn't keep pace with the, you know with the development of the game that happened in the rest of the world. So they're now playing catch up. Well, one place where there's currently a lot of money flowing around is the world of golf, and particularly any players who choose to sign up to the Saudi-backed tournament that's taking place, their series, which begins in England with the Golf Invitational June the 9th to the 11th. It's taking place just north of London, and Phil Mickelson has asked for permission to go and join the uh, the series. It's quite funny, uh, Phil, Phil Mickelson's return, isn't it? Because he uh, took um, a break from golf after his messages regarding the Saudi tournament and um, pretty outrageous language he used in his comments linked to that tournament. Um, and now, guess what? He's coming back, Martin, to play in a Saudi tournament. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know that goes down as sort of one of the most predictable <laughs> outcomes in golf, doesn't it? I was just, uh, you know, that that sort of infamous picture of him with surrounded by you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever it was in banknotes. Um, yeah, so I think we we were just waiting for that that picture opportunity to become sort of Saudi reality. Well. Mickelson has said he's recruited three other big name players. So it's going to be intriguing to see actually who does compete at this event and how they handle all the questions about Saudi Arabia. Maybe Eddie Howe can go and uh, give them some tips. (laughs) Very good. Very good, Rob. Well, that about brings an end to this week's episode of Sport Unlock. Tarek, Martin, thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Rob. It's good to be with you guys again. And any feedback, you can always message us at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you can hit subscribe, rate, and review us, always grateful for that on whichever pod platform you're listening to us on. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye.